knife, but it was so blunt. Nobody had sharpened it. Oh no! You can actually see her struggling to cut the fish apart because you have to oh, hack the head oh, off oh, and everything. Oh yeah, yeah. She did well for herself, anyways. <laughs> yes, she did very well for herself. Clearly, they liked what they saw, and she continued to host for another forty years. Final question: True or false? Fu Pei Mei and Julia Child passed away one month apart. I'm going to say true again.、Mm. I believe everything you say, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say false. Okay. Actually, Natalie, you're right.、Oh. Okay. So they both passed away in the summer of 2004. However, Julia Child was 91, and Fu Pei Mei was 72. Oh. Yeah. Okay. This all about? Why are they doing that? What's going on here? It's Curious John. What is he curious about today? At just over thirty-six thousand square kilometers around, and somewhere over twenty-three million people. Taiwan is small on a global scale, but it is crammed full of enough treasures to fill a whole museum—the National Taiwan Museum. Since last weekend, visitors can see these treasures on display as never before on a completely refurbished second floor. Rather than place objects in neat rows behind glass cabinets, this new permanent exhibit arranges them in colorful dioramas that make the objects jump out and inspire the imagination. One of the minds behind the design of this new exhibit is museum curator Xu Yuquan, who worked on the half that describes Taiwan's rich natural history. She joins us today for a journey through the exhibit hall, outlining the dramatic story of how Taiwan formed and the rich array of creatures that call it home today. The story begins with the dramatically violent story of how Taiwan came to be in the first place. This land is the product of slow, creaking collisions and separations between three plates: Eurasian, Pacific, and Philippine. Between 190 million and 60 million years ago, the land where Taiwan now sits started to crumple upwards like an accordion being squeezed together. Then, between 60 million and 15 million years ago, the crust around Taiwan pulled apart instead and flattened like an accordion being pulled out. Taiwan has since seen this cycle of pushing in and pulling out repeat once more. First, building up dramatic mountains, and then thinning out the crust and letting magma break through in volcanoes that sit near Taipei today. All of this pushing and pulling apart took place a long time ago, but for geologists, millions of years are nothing. Taiwan is a young island that's seen a whole lot of crunching and ripping apart over the past few million years. Signs of this squeezing, warping, and ripping are everywhere beneath our feet, and Miss Xu even calls the island a geological classroom. She says it's the envy of geologists from older and more stable lands, where interesting features like these have long since disappeared. Now, in an ordinary museum exhibit, looking at some rocks might not be all that much fun to the non-specialist. But here, minerals from around Taiwan are organized by color and shape, and displayed together in a rainbow spiral in a way that recalls a painter's palette. All the subtle differences in texture and shade are, if nothing else, mesmerizingly beautiful to look at. We have gold and silver deposits here, plus more famously, jade, crystal aragonite, pink and black rhodonite that looks rather like candy. 
and beautiful exported marble. Among this kaleidoscope of stones are placed a variety of fossils of the ancient creatures that once called this land home, some of them so well-preserved that you can still clearly see features like the veins and leaves. These ancient creatures tell the final chapter in the story of Taiwan's formation, a period from 30,000 to 18,000 years ago when an ice age made sea levels drop sharply and connected Taiwan to the Eurasian mainland. This period was crucial because many creatures were able to use this time to migrate across the land bridge to Taiwan. Evolution took its course as the sea levels rose again and separated Taiwan, and today there's a rich variety of species that are native to Taiwan. In total, we see around 60,000 creatures that are known to science here. Surprisingly, Ms. Xu is careful to say that this doesn't mean that that's all that there is. Scientists still haven't combed every inch of the land here, small though it is. Still though, of these, 59,000 known species are native to Taiwan, and many are found nowhere else. Creatures like the Formosan black bear, the Formosan sambar deer, and the Formosan macaque monkey are particularly well-known species of mammals found nowhere else. While among the birds, we have Mikado's pheasant with their brilliantly blue males, the equally brilliantly blue Swinho's pheasant, and the striking black-headed and blue-bodied Taiwan blue magpie. Then we have amphibians, like the shy, high-mountain Taiwan lesser salamander, and a variety of plants, like the bizarre-looking flame golden rain tree that blooms golden flowers in early autumn and soon after sprouts pink leaves around its fruit. Then there are great trees at higher altitudes, like the endangered Taiwan cypress that are worthy of note. Native species like these have been around in Taiwan for eons, but the first notice of a modern scientist coming to investigate them comes from 1854. That year, a naturalist arrived on a day trip from China's southeast coast. This was the start of a rich period of 19th century explorers who came to collect and catalog Taiwan's wildlife. The most notable is probably the British consul Robert Swinhoe, who was here as a diplomat officially, but who catalogued and named many, many species, including the famous Swinhoe's pheasant. The first Taiwanese specimen to reach foreign shores arrived earlier, in 1852. That year, naturalists in Britain noted the arrival of a specimen of the evergreen shrub, the rice paper plant, which arrived from Taiwan indirectly, having been gathered there by the imperial Chinese and then somehow transferred into British hands. As you can see, local Taiwanese were not yet involved in investigating their own backyard. It was all Westerners in the early days, and it would be a while before Taiwanese people began taking an active interest in these things. After 1895, most of the experts would be Japanese, who had been fired up with Western ideas like colonialism and took Taiwan, and also ideas like modern botany. If you look at the scientific names of many specimens on display here, you'll notice that a lot of them are named after Japanese discoverers. It was Japanese researchers who were the first to thoroughly investigate the island, and it was also Japanese who founded the National Taiwan Museum itself in 1908, though back then it was known as the Museum of the Japanese Colonial Governor. Likewise, a large number of the specimens that the museum has in its collection were gathered by Japanese surveyors the museum sent out on expeditions during the early 1900s. 
they're still in great condition, and you can barely tell that many of the plants and animals are nearing 90 or 100 years old. The real local development of naturalism only took off after World War II, when Japan lost control of Taiwan, experts from China began to come over, and local people were eventually trained as naturalists. Since then, the museum, now a truly Taiwanese institution, has taken an active role in the training of Taiwanese scientists and given them a platform to publish their findings in the museum's very own journal. There's still an awful lot of collecting going on today, and the old Japanese taxidermies and plant samples sit harmoniously next to specimens only gathered in the last few years. Again, if all these specimens had been arranged one by one in neat rows behind glass cabinets, you might just think, well, here are some dead things, and you probably wouldn't want to spend too much time looking at them. The way the museum has arranged these specimens in this exhibit makes all the difference. The sea creatures hang in a spiral from the ceiling, and the creatures that come from each of Taiwan's eco-regions, from the lowlands to the highest mountains, are arranged together in a natural scene that makes the specimens look alive. The exhibit is divided into four bits. The first two parts show Taiwan's formation and fossil record. An animated display shows the formation of specific bits of Taiwan in a lot more detail than we can cover in just 10 minutes. Then, in the third bit, we see the tremendous diversity of Taiwan's wildlife on display, using a mixture of taxidermied animals, sea creatures, and pressed plants that illustrate life in Taiwan's seas, its lowland areas, its mid-altitude forests, and its frigid highlands. And in the fourth and final section, we see current environmental issues, particularly those caused by overfishing and pesticides. For instance, visitors can see models of a food chain that's been disrupted by the use of pesticides. Taiwanese farmers trying to protect their fields of red beans from small birds often resort to spraying their crops with pesticide to kill them off. But then, scavenging eagles come and eat the poisoned corpses of those little birds, and they end up getting poisoned themselves. The exhibit shows how recently, conservationists have convinced farmers in Taiwan to use alternative methods to protect their crops, using machines to press their roots down deep in the soil so small birds can't get them. Ms. Xu says this final part of the exhibit seeks to get people thinking about how our actions impact all the beautiful nature we've just been shown, and imagine better ways of coexisting with Taiwan's nature. We've learned a lot from Ms. Xu this week, but we're hardly done when it comes to this exhibit. There's a whole separate wing that focuses on Taiwan's man-made treasures. Next week, we'll talk to another museum curator to discuss the kaleidoscope of cultures found on this land. I'm Curious John, and I'll see you again next week. Welcome to Tales from an Outlying Island, a series of short stories from the Taiwanese island of Kinmen, or Jinmen as it's known in Chinese. I'm Andrew Ryan. Today we're featuring the story Home for the Winter by Mike Thompson and William Wayne Bowles. Kinmen is the destination for one of the most amazing bird migrations in Asia, the movement of the Great Cormorant from Siberia to Kinmen every year in January. It's a spectacular sight that the local people enjoy watching every year. Just one of the events that attracts people who love wildlife, especially bird watchers, to Kinmen. The main character of our story is Lucas. He and his family are great cormorants, and they're preparing for their long journey. 
This is Lucas. Lucas is a black and brown great cormorant. He sits on a rock near his home. This is his family. He has a mother, a father, and a sister. Lucas and his family play at the lake. Lucas and his family live in the north during summer, but snowy weather is on the way. By now, it's winter, and Lucas can see the snow falling as he sits on his perch in a tree. Every year, Lucas and his family fly from Siberia to Kinmen. And to make sure they don't lose their way, Lucas checks the map before they leave. Lucas and his family get ready to go. It's a long trip to Kinman. Lucas helps his family pack a suitcase near the lake. But they won't need warm clothes where they're going. So Lucas fills his whole suitcase with fish. Off they fly. Lucas, his family, and all of their friends leave at the same time, flying in a V-shaped formation. Lucas flies high. Lucas's family looks so small from up here. He's so ready to go that he flies ahead of the group. Lucas flies fast. Nobody can keep up with Lucas. His enthusiasm for flight carries him further from his family. Then, Lucas flies into bad weather. Oh no, those dark clouds don't look good. Lucas flies head-on into a patch of dark, ominous clouds. First, it's windy. Lucas struggles in the wind, blown here and there by fierce gales. Then it's stormy. Lucas finds himself all alone in the dark center of a storm. Lucas can't find his family. Oh no, where are they? Lucas frantically flies back and forth, searching in the dark for his family, but he can't find them, no matter how hard he looks. Finally, it's sunny. There they are! Thank goodness, everyone has come out of the storm okay, and they are reunited in the sunny skies off the coast of China. Lucas and his family are almost there. They get excited as they approach Kimmin from the north. Lucas and his family land safely. The whole family settles down near Gugong Lake. What a nice winter home. Lucas and his family are happy to be safe and sound in Kimmin, where they'll spend the rest of the winter. Home for the Winter is part of the Fulbright Children's Book Series. It was written by Mike Thompson and William Wayne Bowles, two Fulbright scholars who were part of the English Teaching Assistantship Program on Kinman during the 2012-2013 academic year. The series Tales from an Outlying Island was produced by Radio Taiwan International. You'll find the links to the books at english.rti.org.tw.
pull yourself together already. It's time to feast! Sit down at the table with Andrew Ryan and Ellen Chu on Feast Meets West. Hello, welcome to the feast. Welcome to the feast. This is Andrew Ryan. And this is Ellen Chu. And as a matter of fact, one more seat. That's right. I'm we here. We have Reese Ayers. I'm here again. Yes. You know, he just can't get enough of Feast Meets West. <laughs> it's, it's Andrew's cooking that I'm back for, honestly. Oh, okay. no. Yeah. After the Zhong uh, Gao, I'm ready. Yes. Mm. Well, you haven't really tried his real cooking yet, okay? <laughs> that was, you know, mm, I don't think it's like very representative of his cooking. I don't think people really come to this show for my cooking necessarily. They more, I think more people are interested in to see how I'm going to fail in the kitchen. <laughs> really? That's where the real drama okay. comes in. <laughs> well, today we're going to have a real test for him because, you know, our show actually, you know, kind of got inspired by Juliet Child. Mm. Okay. You mean and the whole Feast Meets West? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Right? Yep. Yep. It was, you know, starting off with 52 dishes in our old show called The Groove Zone. And, you know, yes. he just went off and started making like, you know, one dish per week. So I was inspired by that movie, Julie and Julia, Mm -hmm. where a woman kind of uh, gets... I guess she's inspired to create a blog based on her recreations of all of Julia Child's dishes. Mm. Mm -hmm. And through that process, she kind of remakes her life. And she Mm -hmm. kind of, I guess, refines herself again. Uh, so we we thought it would be kind of fun to try to force me. <laughs> we we thought it would be fun to force me to create a dish every week and to learn how to create the dish from a person. And did you find yourself? I found a show. Okay, he found the show called Feast Meets West. Okay, I do think it was a fun challenge, and I do like the idea of learning how to create dishes from other people. I think mm-hmm. that that's mm-hmm. a really special process to kind of learn about somebody and where they're coming from and kind of kind of step into their shoes or step into their kitchen for I imagine a while. it must feel like quite an intimate experience you know right. following somebody's recipe word for word maybe even watching videos of them and listening to them and, and creating something that they themselves invented right. absolutely it's like walking a mile in their shoes mm. except you're actually I don't know creating a dish with their spatula yes. or their kind of their walk right They are in command of their life, okay? That is right. But today, we do have a story, and we do want to introduce a somewhat, you know, representative of Taiwan, we would say. It's Julia Child of Chinese Cooking. Yes. Her name is Fu Pei Mei. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to tell you all about her in honor of... Uh, Women's Day, which is actually this coming Monday, March 8th. Yes. We thought we'd shine a a spotlight on one of Taiwan's most famous uh, chefs. I think, you know, it's like every household, you know, would have somebody like you know doing a dish according to her recipe mm. i remember my in my house there's like three or four books of recipe book you know cooking book from her she was on tv for 40 years you know yes. so a whole generation or two i guess of taiwanese people have grown up with her cooking i was reading an article that said not only have a generation of taiwanese people grown up with her cooking uh looking at her chinese cookbooks actually in the u.s and other places where there are chinese diaspora around the world 
the second generation actually learned how to cook Chinese food from her English language cookbooks. Wow. wow. Because she created um, more than 30 cookbooks in her career Goodness. in both English and Chinese. And she ran her own classes. You know, that's, that's just amazing. And so. yeah, and also there's a mini series about her on Netflix too. Oh, great! Ooh. So if people are interested, I'll just give you the name of she that. She just sounds like a powerhouse of a, of a woman. I it's think. called Wu Wei Ba Zhen de Sui Yue. And in English, if you're looking for it in English, it is called uh, "What She Put on the Table," and it should be available around the world on Netflix. Mm. So we're going to be uh, talking about her in today's show. We're going to have our amazing story and. Uh, some food inspired by her. Okay, let's check our menu of Fu Pei Mei. First course, incredible story of Fu Pei Mei in our second course. I'm going to head into the Feast Wings West Test Kitchen and attempt to make one of the dishes that she featured in her show. Well, a la Julia and Julie. And in the third course, we'll sample that dish in here, right here. In the studio and find out if it's uh, if it's edible or not. Should be. I'm a little nervous, actually, to be very Did honest. Did you pick a hard dish? I mean, there's so many different recipes. So I watched like 30 different videos of her cooking. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that her specialty were, were all these like da cai, right? Mm-hmm. Like all these big dishes you would have in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Right. So lots of stir frying and like lots of meat and fish and deboning. And it's basically a kind of cooking that I'm totally totally unfamiliar with. Mm, yeah. Cooking for, for families and cooking for the, you know, those big restaurants with the big round tables. There, yes, exactly. There are, you know, simple ones. I think you just picked the ones that's hard. No, there are very few. Looking through videos. Did you videos, see like Mai Sang Su? I did not see that. Well, there's Mai Sang Su. That's very easy. You think it's easy, Ellen Chu, mm-hmm. because you're a, <laughs> you're a pro. You're a super yeah. mom. You're a super mom. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, but speaking of super moms, we're going to start off with a song called Super Woman. Ooh, and this is by Cao Ge, Gary Chow. That's right. And when we come back in our first course, we're going to have the amazing story of Fu Pei Mei. At your table, Yetomishitanwoshi 做些什么代替我的歉意 First course. 
Okay, the story of Fu Pei Mei. Well, she was actually born not in Taiwan, yes, in China, right, in 1931. That's right, in Dalian, and at、mm. the time it was under Japanese rule, so、mm. she ended up actually speaking Japanese quite well.、Mm-hmm. Wow! And she was from quite a wealthy family as well,、mm. um, mm-hmm. so she probably was better off than a lot of people around that area at that time. It was、right. a pretty turbulent period. So you know,、mm. she probably had a you know very tasteful palate because of you know coming from a wealthy family. She knows like what tastes good and、sure. what are the exquisite flavorings of a big dish. But what's interesting is,、um, so she ended up in Taiwan. She either came here. I'm assuming she fled here to Taiwan in 1949 when she was、um, 18,、mm. and、uh, she ended ended up meeting her husband, who was from the same town that she was from.、Mm. And when they first got married, he would like kind of. Laugh at her, her cooking. Yeah, so,、mm-hmm. really, your food is so terrible. It's、wow. like even her dumplings are bad. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that should be something easy, right? right? So after that, her life mission was to prove her husband wrong. Exactly,、yeah. she's a superwoman. All right, okay. So I heard that she actually used her dowry. She used the money that she brought with her. Okay, and she went to local restaurants and got the the masters at the restaurants, the chefs, to teach her how to cook. Wow,、Ooh. and that's something that was very rare because I think at the time it was mostly like. Male chefs teaching their like male apprentices, right? So, well, you know, if she's like offering money for lessons, you know, who's not going to teach her, right? <laughs> yeah, right. I'm always very inspired by these people who, in history, they're so driven that they kind of just won't stop at anything to to achieve what they know is their dream. And Fupin、right. Mei sounds like one of those people. Or, you know, it might not be her dream, but it was just like, you know, she didn't want to be put down by her husband. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't tell me that I can't cook.、Yeah. I'm going to put it in your mouth. <laughs> Shove it in your mouth. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting because like I think I, I I envision her doing this because she wanted to please her husband.、Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's probably a very traditional kind of inspiration that she had to to do this. But it、mm-hmm. wasn't until like ten or eleven years later that she actually went on to host a TV show.、Mm-hmm. So I, I imagine, like, we don't know much about what happened in that ten years. I think she started off, you know, working in a normal job in a company, and then you know she was on TV in TV commercials promoting, like, you know, electrical appliances. Probably、mm. her company was selling electrical appliances, so she maybe had the looks and the poise for it, you know, to be seen on TV. So later, you know, when they found out that she can cook, you know, probably the producer, you know. Thought of this cooking show that was suitable for her. I mean, if you watch her videos, the, you know there are some on YouTube.、Uh, she's very poised and she's very controlled, and、mm-hmm. she's she kind of has that mother auntie energy、mm-hmm. to her. Somebody that you know has authority but is also quite kind. Yeah,、right. uh, reminds me of my own mother. Yes,、oh, it's、yeah. just kind of like the you know the the mom that lives next door and she、mm. could really cook. So、mm-hmm. if you have any question, you can just knock her door and ask her. And it's true too. Like if you watch her videos, she's very focused on like the actual like the the cooking part of it. She's not like kind of showy or kind of cracking jokes.、Mm-hmm. She's she, serious and focused.、Yeah. Serious and focused. And what I, what I think is amazing is I think her first show would have been in 1962. So that was 
a long time ago. That was, what, mm. 60 years ago? Yeah. Well, wow. Yeah. Am I, am I calculating yeah, it correctly? 59 years ago, yeah. But she um, was given a, like a five-minute slot in a women's show, and they called it Fu Pei Mei's Time, like or Fu Pei Mei's Jin. Mm-hmm. And uh, the very first dish she did, she had five minutes to put the whole dish together. Wow. Wow. And I went and I searched for it. It was called uh, Song Shu Huang Yu. Hmm. So, like, squirrel yellowfish. Mm-hmm. So, basically, she slices up the um, the fish so very it quickly. Has, when you fry it, it looks like yeah. everything is, like, popped up, right? It's all, like, popped up like a squirrel's tail. So, uh. it's, like, all fried and breaded mm-hmm. and everything. But she's, like, going so fast yeah. because she only has five, five minutes, minutes to do the whole thing. And I heard that uh, for her very first episode, she forgot to bring a knife. And so they had to borrow a knife. Okay. But it was very blunt. Oh, dear. So she's like hacking away. She has to cut it multiple times in order to get all the bones out and everything. Uh Uh-huh. She tosses it in there, gets the thing out. She pulls it out and it looks beautiful, right? Yeah. And all very puffy and kind of deep fried Mm -hmm. and slaps it on a plate. And then all of a sudden it's done. And she's like, okay, that's all the time we have. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder what mothers at home watching that are thinking, you know, that uh, is that, are they thinking that's something I could do or are they just completely intimidated by? No, I think, you know, because she looks so, you know, sweet Mm -hmm. and like the neighbor next door. They they believe that probably they can do it too. Mm. Yeah, I was reading that the influence she had on cooking in, in Taiwan and around the world was actually huge. She she left a huge impact, and a lot of people felt by watching her show, even though she was doing these kind of big dishes, these big meats and fishes, that they thought, oh, you know what, I could actually do this at home. And people would actually watch. They would wait for the time when she'd be you know cooking and they would get their own uh, ingredients ready and they would actually cook along cook with along her. yeah, yeah i think fun. the reason is because she looked ordinary okay she looked like somebody that it's not like you know a tv personnel or a celebrity mm. but she could actually do these big dishes that's kind of like you know very very grand that you can put put it on your dinner table So, you know, these people would think that I want to learn from her Mm. because if I can do that, you know, I would impress my guest, I would impress my husband or my family. Mm. And she she must have had this international appeal because, you know, at a time, I think, you know, in the 60s, 70s, Taiwan probably wasn't having much of an international presence. She was exporting her programs to Japan and the US and other Asian countries. She hosted a show in Japan for For five five years years, yeah, uh, because Mm. she also spoke Japanese. Um, and over 30 cookbooks in English and Chinese. Right, so oh, yeah, the, very influential. The New York Times actually called her the Julia Child of Chinese cooking in 1971. Wow. So she actually made her mark that early, within mm. 10 years of doing her TV show. Wow. I'm a little ashamed that I hadn't really heard of her before researching for this program. Mm. Because she sounds like an amazing woman that I think people really should know about. Mm. I'm definitely going to go watch that Netflix series about her. Mm. Okay. Um, yeah. And again, that is called What She Put on the Table. One other thing, too, is uh, that I noticed when watching her dishes is that she does make little mistakes here and there. It's Mm -hmm. not all perfect because I think, uh, you know, we're so accustomed to seeing cooking shows where everything is beautifully shot. Right. They've taken a whole day to shoot one dish. Yeah. But with her, it was all live in Mm -hmm. the beginning. Mm -hmm. So, you see, like, things falling out of the pan or, like, she pours it into the plate and it doesn't all make it in there. And she's cool as a cucumber. Mm. She's like, this is what happens in a kitchen. Not everything is going to be perfect all the time. That's why it makes it possible that, you know, for these women to sit in front of the television and feel that, you know, this is something possible because she did it and she had some imperfections, but she's still able to, you know, 
to to have the end product come out. Yeah, I mean, watching right? a Gordon Ramsay show, everything's mm. so perfectly shot and edited and in slow motion and presented so beautifully at the end. You get it's intimidated. Not, you do, yeah. Right. It's not realistic either, you know. Right. We're not making food that looks that beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, maybe that was the key to her success was that she was relatable. Mm. Uh, just she, like us. Yeah, just like us. <laughs> you know, we have some bloopers, you know, many bloopers. Yep. I want you to all remember that in our second chorus when I go into the Feast Meets the West <laughs> test kitchen and try to create one of her dishes. All right. You uh, did make some bloopers, right, in your kitchen? I always make bloopers. What are you okay. talking about? <laughs> you just can't see them. You can only hear me mentioning the bloopers that I make. Okay. Um, very quickly before we get into that, though, uh, she also was uh, awarded with the Golden Bell Award after she passed away. Oh, um, wow. She passed away in 2004, mm. just a month before uh, Julia Child. Wow. Same year. Mm. I wonder um, if they ever interacted with each other. That would be interesting to, to find out. Or maybe it was a month after Julia Child, yeah. actually. It was also nice to see that she was honored with a Google Doodle. Yeah. Um, you know, when Google, sometimes they change their logo on the homepage to honor a person in history. Mm -hmm. And it was her in uh, October 2015. Wow. Uh, so that, that's a nice bit of recognition, I mm -hmm. think. Yeah, and you can see two of her most famous dishes there. One is uh, fried prawn slices with sour sauce. Ooh, that sounds good. Cheng family meat dish, Cheng Jia Da Rou. We'll have a little link to those in our show notes so you Great. can see that uh, Google Doodle. So if you want to try it, you know, you can do it at home. That's right. Uh, we are going to go into another song here. This one is called Bian Ai Liao Li, or. Uh, Love Cuisine. Okay. <laughs> it's by the Love Cuisine. That's right. It's by uh, BB Joe. Mm. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment in the Feast Meets West Test Kitchen. You're listening to Feast Meets West. Second course. Okay, we are back now on the second course of today's Feast Meets West. And I'm going to try to make a dish that was created by TV chef Fu Pei Mei, who is probably the most famous uh, TV chef on Taiwan television. She's the first person to ever host a TV show in Taiwan that shows you how to cook. 
and this is a dish called quick fried beef and green onions. I'm just going to play a little bit of her introducing the food here now to give you a feeling of what it's like for me to stand here in my kitchen watching her and cooking, which actually some people would definitely have done uh, in Taiwan in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Now, mind you, this video only takes her four minutes and 50 seconds uh, to create this dish, so that shows you just how quickly you have to stir-fry it. Okay, so this dish is a Shandong-style dish, she says. It's cooked using a method called bao, or quick stir-fried. She says that this method often uses green onions, but you can also bao things with water or salt. So I'm going to start off by doing what she does, and that's uh, using shaved beef rather than a thicker cut you might see at a restaurant. And I'm just uh, chopping those into one to two square inch pieces using about 200 to 300 grams of shaved beef total. Then uh, we're just going to put those on a plate and uh, we're going to marinate them. Now, I have to say too, she doesn't include any measurements in her recipe, uh, but just eyeballing it, it looks like uh, she's using about one and a half tablespoons of soy sauce and everything is measured with a kind of what looks like a tablespoon size. Several turns of black pepper, and we're just going to massage those together to mix around the flavors and let it marinate. Now, in another bowl, I'm going to mix all of the spices together that I'm going to use when I'm stir-frying because it's going to go so quickly that we won't have time to toss them in all separately. We've got two spoons of soy sauce. Again, these are tablespoons. About a half a spoon of vinegar, half a tablespoon of sesame oil, one spoon of rice wine, and a very generous shake of ground citron peppercorns. Now, I'm just going to grind those up right now, and I'm going to toss those in. All right, now, on to the green onions. Now, you need about as much green onions as meat. So, I'm using thin ones, so I'm going to cut them on the bias in uh, inch-long segments. All right, now I'm preparing the garlic. Roughly three tablespoons of garlic, so I've got about three or four fat cloves here. Just chopping those up roughly. Uh, now, three to four tablespoons of oil goes into the wok on high heat. And you really want the high heat for this. And so, very quickly, the oil has heated up enough to stir-fry. I'm noticing in her video, her oil is actually starting to smoke. I toss in the garlic, and this should be uh, fragrant pretty instantly. So, we're talking like five seconds. Uh, so, I'm going to toss in all of the meat and the onions together and I'm going to stir-fry for 30 seconds. Now that the meat has slightly browned, I'm going to just toss in my bowl of all the seasonings. Remember the soy sauce and the, uh, the vinegar and everything. And I'm going to stir-fry it for another 20 seconds, and then we're going to plate it up. I'm noticing she's going very quickly because her time is running out. Now, <laughs> funnily enough, my time is running out too because... I have to get back to Radio Taiwan International to uh, serve up this dish for Ellen and Reese. So we're going to play another song before I get there. Uh, this song is called Mama de Liaoli, or Mother's Cooking. That's in the uh, Taiwanese Hokkien dialect. This is by Lin Chouden. Get ready, we're going to sample this dish when we return in our third course. Hey, 
是妈妈的料理，会记哩细汉时，妈妈那在做卤味，我会跟在伊的身躯边，食好料的，食甲笑咪咪。他乡孤单眠，想起阮妈咪，出外的憨囝，有时嘛在食泡面。那想起妈妈时，目屎就流袂哩。心目中永远的第一味是妈妈煮食的料理。二课。We've just、uh, dished up some of this quick-fried beef and green onions, and、uh, mm. Ellen and Reese are digging in.、Mm. You said that the onions were overcooked, but they're not. They're delicious. They're delicious.、Good. Oh, these are good. This is this is one of my favorite dishes when I go to like you know one of those dajuo restaurants、mm. with, with a group of people. Like a rutao, they'll always have these in like those late night food places.、Mm. I always get it. And this is restaurant standard, Andrew. Oh, stop it, you guys! I mean, Ellen, you've been、this、doing this、good. longer than I have. How does this compare to Andrew's previous attempts? <laughs> compared to Zhang Yuengao, it's it's one hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> but he has done some. Super amazing dishes.、Mm-hmm. Okay, so you know I've been impressed over the wall, over the roof. Okay, over the moon. Mm-hmm. Mm. But、over、this is good. Yeah. Was it easy? I think this is easy enough, right? Was there some secret, you know,、so、little moves or you know, cutting or chopping preparation? I will tell you there are two interesting things that she did.、Um, one was because the the heat or the the flame on the stoves in most households. Is not big enough to really stir fry like they do in restaurants.、Right. So she actually has you buy shaved beef、oh. rather than a thicker cut of、mm-hmm. beef, and that actually cuts the cooking time down too. The whole dish, when you start cooking to finishing cooking, like the actual in the walk time,、yeah. is only about a minute. A minute. Yeah. Wow! Only a minute you can finish stir frying yep. it. Yep. And the beef is so well cooked, though.、Mm. But it, you can tell that it's not been cooked for too long because it still has quite a texture to it. Yeah.、Uh, but it's good. She says you can keep it.、Uh, you don't have to cook it all the way through. The beef can be slightly rare. Uh huh. I think you know you could have like picked it up a little bit earlier.、Mm, I think so too.、Mm-hmm. The onions could have、uh, been a little bit、uh, right. fresher. So do you have to do any preparation for the meat beforehand, like marinate it? Yeah. You see,、so、marinate it with、um, some soy sauce and. Pepper,、uh, and I followed her recipe to the T. So, for example, you'll notice there's no chili peppers in this, right? Whereas usually when I've had tombanio roll,、yep. when I've had this dish, it's had chili peppers. Yep. She doesn't put any in hers. But you have garlic. I do have garlic in there. Yeah,、mm-hmm. a lot、Some、of garlic. Some big hunks of garlic, and I、mm-hmm. love that. Yeah. So I watched a bunch of other chefs making it to see how she did it differently from what they did, and a lot of chefs will do it in stages. They put the white of the onion in first. Then they put the meat in, and then they put the green of the onion in at the very end. Right, because the green one go soggy really、very、fast.、Quickly. So you just need to sprinkle it at the end. But she does it all at once because it's so fast that it doesn't really even matter. Do you think that's a symptom of the time restraints of her program? That's one thing. I think definitely she was like, for example, she didn't marinate her meat for 
like more than 20 seconds. Okay. Whereas I let mine sit for probably about five, 10 minutes, mm. which is what most recipes would have you do. Mm-hmm. And I think most home cooks watching it probably would let their meat sit for a little longer than that mm-hmm. because they're not moving as quickly as she was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I was moving super fast. You know why? Because I was trying to get here on time. <laughs> oh. I was like, this is the real, this is like the real deal. This is exactly like her trying uh, to finish everything quickly so, so I can get here on time. you <laughs> were actually wearing Fu Pei Mei's shoe. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's yes. Five minutes for the yeah. dish. I'm getting notes of panic in the beef. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. More than notes. <laughs> All right. On it, it is really, really but, good. But you know, Andrew. this would be super good just over rice. Mm. Yes. Oh. It's just some nice white wow. rice. I know. Yeah. It would be yeah. a great like uh being done like a like a nice just like a set lunch. Right. It'd be delicious. Oh. Well you sweet talkers, I guess I'll cook more for you later. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. He's gonna be Andrew Ryan Pei May. I'm only here for the free lunches. That's yes. all I'm <laughs> But this is good. I think you know you did well. Well yeah. thank you. Okay. And I, I have to say I really enjoyed watching all of her videos. Mm-hmm. And kind of imagining what it would have been like to be a stressed out like housewife in the nineteen mm. sixties. Yeah. Afraid to, you know, cook a, a a poor meal for her family and like you know, of course that's a it's a very sexist way to look at it, but that's that's the way the world we lived in in the sixties, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but, she, but I can feel that. I can understand. But she that. got the stage and the spotlight at that moment mm. that everybody, you know, put her on the stage and she had that five minutes. I guess, you know, most of you know, everyone, all the women who had television at their home would be watching it. Yeah. yeah. She made the most of her time. She did. Yeah. They may suggest. And yeah. you, she, she has a daughter who's also yes. in the industry. Cheng Anqi. I guess, you know, she did mention in interviews that she hated it when her mom forced her to learn cooking at mm. home. Mm. You know, there were times like, you know, it's like you can't cook. Why are you making me cook, you know? Because when her mom was preparing the dishes for the show, she would make every dish many times. Right. Mm. And when she was learning how to cook for her family, she also had lots right. of failed attempts. And the kids were involved with mm-hmm. all of that, right? So, you know, Cheng Anqi, I think she has her own cookbook, too. And mm-hmm. she's still running, I think, the cook schools. The cooking schools, mm-hmm. yeah, that her mom made That's famous. great. So her legacy so. really does live on, you know, right. through that and through her programs and through this as well. You know, the fact that yeah. we're learning about her as well. I know. Absolutely. So if you uh, want to get to know a little bit more about Fu Pei Mei, uh, you can look her up on YouTube. Uh, F-U is her how you spell her last name. And F-U. Then, hey, okay. Ellen Chu. Naughty. And then <laughs> P-E-I dash M-E-I. Fu Pei Mei. It's just this beef that gets you giggly. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. Nothing um, else. Right. It's something I put in there. Yes, you must have put some giggly powders <laughs> yeah. in there. Citron hmm. peppercorns are in there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you're feeling a little down, you know, get the Fupe Mei recipe, then you'll be like me, giggly all the day. Oh, no. Uh-huh. Everybody's like, maybe I won't. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. Uh, so, our addresses. What oh, do we have? Our addresses, of course. P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei Taipei. Taiwan and email us at androo at rti.org.tw. And next uh, Saturday on the feast, Reese, you're going to be uh, you're going to be sharing uh, a food with us. Yeah, yeah, it's one of my favorite things ever: fried chicken, Taiwanese style. We'll be talking about what it is, different varieties, and also, of course, we'll be trying some in the studio. Yum yum, right. very very tasty. Mm. I hear there's a secret special ingredient you're going to tell us about too, there right? Is. Really, with Ooh. a cute little story behind it. Okay. Fun. 
Before we leave, we have one more song. It's for all the women out there.、Um, every woman. That's、okay. right. And it's by Ariza Franklin. Franklin. Love her. Happy、uh, Women's Day, Ellen. Right.、Mm. Three、yeah. eight. Okay. Sanba Funujie. That's right. March eighth. This is Ellen Chu. And this is Andrew Ryan. And Mrs. Rezares. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw. Our 60-minute English program can be heard every day at the following times and frequencies: in Southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6185 kilohertz. In South Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kilohertz. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to PO Box 123-199 Taipei, Taiwan. You can also email us at rti@rti.org.tw. 